0: W Media
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security and military
0: operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein
1: and I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
0: That's Emilia Anisovich, the now famous Ukrainian seven-year-old, singing her national anthem at a benefit concert in Poland.
1: Images of the devastation in Ukraine have outraged much of the world and galvanized opinion against Russia and Vladimir Putin. Although the West is providing military equipment to the embattled government of Volodymyr Zelensky, it has rejected military action in favor of sanctions. And the intelligence community has a significant role in investigating.
2: In a way that, again, there's another piece that's so interesting is that not only is the Russian economy so large, it's incredibly sophisticated. Um, And so a lot of the, perhaps easy sort of hanging fruit from an enforcement perspective that are perhaps easy to go after narcotics traffickers um, or even Iranians or, or what have you, I think is going to be harder here uh, just because I think there's a sophistication of the system and frankly a history of being very, very clever in how to sort of, sort of hide things and obscure things that I think are going to require very smart people in the in, 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 in the intelligence sector and the non-intelligence sector for that matter to unravel and to sort of help put uh, two and two together together at four.
1: That was Adam M. Smith, a former sanctions official in the Obama administration. We'll hear more from him later in the show.
0: We've been hearing a lot about cyber war, especially since Russia invaded Ukraine, but not so much about what's been going on down at the battlefield level with electronic warfare, which is to say the ability to intercept an enemy's messages, block the enemy from intercepting your own, as well as to confuse them with false transmissions. So I asked Brian Clark, an expert on electronic warfare at the Hudson Institute, that's a Washington think tank, to break down that side of the secret war for Spy Talk. Brian Clark, welcome to Spy Talk. I was very interested in talking to you because you're not just some Silicon Valley geek in a hoodie. You're you're a former Navy guy and not just an ordinary Navy guy. You were a submariner and an expert in stealthy electronics. But what brought me to you today is an article you recently wrote called the U.S. can use electronic warfare to help Ukrainians without risking a nuclear war. Explain that for us.
3: Uh, yeah, Jeff. So uh, I put that piece out in the New York Post, of all places, which is not a place you'd really expect to see something about high-tech military gadgetry.
0: No, but, uh, I would try not. <laughs> to
3: Try to reach a different audience, if you will. But the idea was there had been a lot of talk about how... You know, the U.S. was were largely hand uh, or its hands were tied in terms of how it could help Ukraine because of the risk of uh, a nuclear war erupting if U.S. and Russian forces came into direct contact. Uh, and my point was there's a lot of ways that U.S. troops or U.S. forces could actually help the Ukrainians without really having to lay a glove on Russians uh, in terms of uh, firing ordnance at them or a missile. Uh, but it could instead use electrons. You know, so there's lots of ways that we currently confront Russians in cyberspace using uh, cyber operations. Uh, that's something that U.S. Cyber Command has been doing for years as part of their strategy. Well, um, we let, me let me stop you.
0: Let me stop you right there. It seems like we are already using a lot of electronics. Uh, we, we we hear a lot about uh, Russian commanders and soldiers having a lot of uh, having a lot of difficulty talking to each other and using cell phones and so on. And I was wondering whether that's a result of our jamming operations. What do you think?
3: Yeah, so it's a result of actually Ukrainian jamming operations, because they do have some electronic warfare systems, uh, most of which were provided by the West. Um, and and actually, in the first tranche of equipment that was provided to Ukraine from NATO, there was electronic warfare systems in there, relatively simple ones that are designed to jam cell phones and other kind of rudimentary electronic communications. So yes, that's, that's an example of Ukrainian jamming, taking out some of the Russians' uh, simple command and control tools. Uh, and my point was, we could ramp that up. The U.S. could be doing some of these operations directly because if you want to go beyond simply jamming a cell phone, but instead you know, try to you know, jam some of the higher-end, longer-range electronics, try to jam satellite communications, try to jam uh, the sensors, the radars that the, the Russians are using to try to monitor the airspace, well, then we, we could put in some U.S. systems that can do those operations. They're completely you know, non-kinetic, to use the military term, Yeah. So they don't actually cause uh, necessarily any lasting damage. There's no permanent effect. Um, And also they don't cause any casualties, you know, unless you jam somebody and they crash into somebody.
0: You know, this seems both uh, futuristic, you know, the stuff of futuristic uh, war novels especially regarding future conflicts with China, and yet old-fashioned at the same time. Because during the Cold War, we did a lot of electronics. I I remember reading uh, in Milt Beard and Jim Risen's book, The Main Enemy, <laughs> about how we uh, we snuck agents into Russian territory, the Soviet territory, to plant shoebox-sized uh, monitors that would uh, pick up uh, vibrations of uh, Soviet tanks on the move uh, and uh, satellites flying overhead would pick up these signals. And I'm wondering if we're using the same kind of thing in Ukraine right now or in Russia itself. Yeah, absolutely.
3: So what we're using today is mostly uh, airborne or satellite signals intelligence systems, you know, that pick up transmissions that are coming from the ground, uh, whether that's Russian communications or it's a Russian radar um, or it's uh some kind of other electromagnetic emissions from troop movements. Um, So we do that from space and from Global Hawk UAVs, from uh, MQ-9 Reapers. So these UAVs have uh, electronic warfare systems on there that can detect these signals. So those are all being used today by the U.S., but basically outside Ukrainian airspace um, or well above Ukrainian airspace from from, low Earth orbit to be able to pick up those signals.
0: Well, tell us how it works. Uh, The satellites fly overhead. Uh, Pick up the signal. And then do we you said the Ukrainians are using this, but but are we supplying intelligence uh, from electronic warfare to them? And and how does that work? How does it work right down to the 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 the, uh, company or even platoon level?
3: Yeah, so for the Ukrainians, they have some of these uh, sensor systems and jammers that are deployed down to the company or platoon level. So a group of a hundred guys, a group of twenty guys, will have some of these systems with them. They'll pick up Russian communication signals, or they'll pick up the fact that Russians are using cell phones maybe to communicate, and they can take the jammer and just deploy it in that area, push it over there, or steer it over there and, and aim it at the Russian troops to jam their cell phones. Um, so that's like the, the lowest level example of that. And then if you go we kind of one level up. Um, the Ukrainians don't have any airborne jamming equipment, you know, the United States does, but we've just been using our passive sensors thus far, using like global hawks, uh, and using space based passive sensors to pick up transmissions coming
0: from Russians. Explain and we, that, explain that yeah. a little bit the passive sensors,
3: right so a passive sensor, you know, like your, um, it just detects a, a radio transmission in in space or in, in the sky so just like your cell phone will pick up uh, radio frequency transmissions. Um, And tell you um, you know that it's a you know cell phone communication, uh, or it'll actually allow you to you know in some cases steer around to find out where the direction of the signal is coming in strongest. You know it's like when you you put a a external antenna on your cell phone, uh, you can actually you know use that to figure out where the direction of the you know cell phone tower is, so you can maybe Mm. point your cell phone at it. So those are that's what those those uh, transmitter those those receivers are doing on satellites and on UAVs is they're picking up transmissions that are coming from the ground and then allowing those to be geolocated. So the the airplane or the satellite will fly over, pick up the transmission from the ground, and then just measure the signal strength. And as the strength gets higher, you know you're approaching it. And then as the signal strength fades, you know you're going away from it. And then you can kind of go back and say, well, where was the thing that was transmitting? It must be right around here. Um, You can also triangulate, you know, and use multiple receivers, you know, two or three satellites will then look at the same place. Find where the transmission's coming from, and then geolocate the transmitter.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my imagination runs backward to World War II movies with roving vans, you know, with radar right. detectors and and so on, and a, a little bit forward with Razzle Dazzle of Cold War spy movies and so on. Um, so take us into this world of down to like a a, a, a band of Ukrainian partisans or guerrilla fighters, and who are um, what, what kind of machinery are they carrying?
3: So uh, with the, Like a cell phone
0: right. size thing?
3: Uh, no, it's, it's like this. It's a backpack sized unit. And what it'll have is on the backpack, there'll be the receiver and the power supply and the controls. And then you'll have a antenna that sticks up out, out of the top of it or that's handheld. And then you can just sort of turn the antenna until you get to the, you know, basically it'll tell you signals getting stronger, signals getting weaker, and then you'll get a bearing to where the transmitter is. So whoever's transmitting will, you know, is in that direction. It'll just point it in that direction. Um, and then the jamming system works very similarly. So once you figure out where the transmitter is, you can turn that system around and tell it to jam and it'll send out a jamming signal. Um, the other thing that the system will do is most of these systems will tell you what approximate frequency the syst- their communications are at so that you can jam on that approximate frequency and try to maximize the impact uh, on their ability to transmit and receive cell phone signals or radio signals.
0: Let's move to the other side of the table now, the Russian side. So can we assume that they have the same kind of equipment?
3: Oh, yeah. So Russians. So uh, what's, Russians... What's,
0: what's happening with them? How are they screwing yeah. it up?
3: Well, so the Russians have uh, actually more capable systems than the Ukrainians do. The problem is for the Russians, um, the Ukrainians are all mixed in with the civilian population. So the Russians turn on their radio receivers, and they're trying to find Ukrainian troops. Well, they're all mixed in with the civilians, and so they just see a bunch of cell phone signals. They can't tell who might be a military person and who might not be. Um, whereas the Russians are outside coming in, and it's clear where the Russian troops are. You know, they kind of know in general they're coming on the roads towards Kiev. They're in the you know in the, in the prairie, you know, around different cities. Um, so you can tell you kind of just positionally where the Russian troops are. So if you look for a transmission and you find it out there, you know that's probably Russian. Also, the Russians are using some of their radios which have. characteristic frequencies that they operate on so if you pick up a signal with that frequency you kind of know it's a it's a russian signal um but the russians when they're looking at the ukrainians all they see is cell phone signals because that's what most of the ukrainian communications are at right now Uh, and they're also using some western provided radios and the western provided radios have a low probability of detection uh, characteristics that make them harder to find Mm. Um, so some of the radios that we sent over there as part of these AIDS pa- aid packages is, uh, are, are radios that have um, po- uh, power levels that are very low. They try to stay right at the noise floor uh, of the overall electromagnetic energy in the area. So they're hard to detect. They don't really rise above that noise floor very much. Or they use um, waveforms that are very hard to detect uh, from most Russian kind of simple electronic warfare systems. So the Ukrainians, because they're either mixed in with the civilians or they're using these new Western radios, are going to be hard to find. And so the Russians are having a tough time finding and jamming them because you got to find somebody before you can jam them.
0: Hmm. Well, not, they're not all, uh, not to at this point, but uh, not all the Ukrainian fighters are walking around or deploying with civilians or hiding among the civilians they are out there. We've now seen video of combat units of Ukrainian troops taking on Soviet mechanized, uh, Russian mechanized units, um, you know, out in the fields uh, and in the forest, not not among the civilians.
3: Right. And then those those situations, you do see Russians using their electronic warfare equipment to try to, you know, to disrupt the communications of the Ukrainians. Um, the issue is uh, you get there. You're, you're not always going to be successful at that because they're all on the move and you have to have your jammer steered in a particular direction to make sure you get the effect.
0: Um, do you think our guys are better than theirs? I mean, I, I, I envision, you know, it's a young man's game in a way that all this stuff. Right. Uh, and I. Uh, one of the articles I read talked about. Uh, again, there's so much disinformation and misinformation going around. It's hard to really tell what what's ground truth here. But one of the articles said that that the Russian cyber corps is dominated by young people, um, young guys, uh, just like you know the guys in their parents' basement, you know, in America. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 so that they might be vulnerable to. Um, uh, you know, dropping out of the war because they're they're more idealistic and so on. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I, I so there's a difference between the Russian cyber corps and their electronic warfare troops. So the electronic warfare troops in the Russian military. Our military forces, you know, that have been kind of brought up and then, you know, shunted over into the electronic warfare community. So it's a community within the Russian military. Um, and they tend to be a little bit, they're not conscripts, they tend to be better trained. And they're maybe a little bit more part of the military. The cyber troops, on the other hand, are generally a mix of uh, contractors, civilians, and then some military folks. And as you said, they're mostly younger. And so it's a different uh, culture in the cyber core than it is in the regular military where you've got the electronic warfare people. Um, And I think you're right that, you know, what we've seen is that the cyber core maybe is less, um, you know, uh, patriotic, if you will, or nationalistic, and maybe less wedded to, you know, the idea of a Russia that's going to always be successful in these aggressive actions towards, you know, kind of peaceful neighbors. Mm. Uh, So, so, that's part of what you're seeing, perhaps. Uh, I think the other there's a lot of other dynamics at play, though, and why we haven't seen as many Russian cyber operations, which we, we can talk about that separately.
0: Um, go back to your uh, article that you wrote in the New York Post recently. You call for escalating these, this electronic warfare game with um, drones, the Gray Eagle, yeah. uh, and the Reapers, and the intrepid tiger electronic attack pods yeah. you <laughs> singled out. So to talk a little bit about how we need to escalate our our electronic warfare game.
3: Yeah, so the US, I think, can get more involved in the fight if it looks at essentially like these reversible effects, like electronic warfare is. Um, So the the UAVs I was talking about, so the Gray Eagle is an Army UAV, the MQ-1, which is based off the Predator. It's just an improved version of the Predator that we're all kind of familiar with from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, But it's very long range, very long endurance. It could fly for a day at a time. Um, And they've equipped it with these uh, electronic warfare pods that are designed specifically for jamming communications frequencies, which are generally kind of lower frequencies than what you might see from a radar uh, or from a satellite communication system, um, mostly for for radar. But the, uh, so the Gray Eagles jamming system is really designed to jam um, terrestrial communications, the kind of frequencies that armored units would use against, you know, to coordinate with one another, uh, to jam some of the communications they would use to talk to satellites. Um, And basically it does that by introducing a lot of noise along those frequencies so that the receivers on the tanks or the armored vehicles can't hear any communications coming in. Um, So that's the basic way that it goes about it. Um, It's also a little bit more sophisticated. It's got some tools to be able to do some uh, deception. So you can introduce some transmissions that would maybe be uh, deceptive versions of what was originally transmitted. So kind of, you know, receive and then retransmit something that's maybe not correct, you know, try to introduce some chaos into the coordinate, you know, coordination of operations. Um, but, uh, and then the other thing you can do is, um, uh, create decoys. So it can create, you know, it can you know, create a, a transmission that makes you think that there's a Russian, you know, troop over here that there really isn't. And maybe you think that that's a, court, a troop that you have to go coordinate with, or it can it can create the simulation of a Ukrainian unit over there that maybe you're detecting a transmission from a, a Ukrainian radio and that you should be going to go engage that Ukrainian force. So it can do some deception. It can do some jamming. Um, the Intrepid Tiger II system, which is a Marine Corps system, uh, has been integrated onto the MQ-9 Reaper uh, UAV, which is a kind of a faster longer range, newer version of the predator. Um, that mQ nine can do a lot of the same the intrepid tiger does a lot of the same things. Uh, it's a more sophisticated version of the jammer on the mQ one. So it's uh, got the ability to do more deceptive operations uh, and it can actually do more jamming techniques. So instead of just noise jamming, uh, the intrepid Tiger 2 can do um, jamming that's going to you know cause the radar to get incorrect signals, not just
0: a lack mm. of signal. Well we're really in the weeds now yeah <laughs> as, as I promised we would be to some, <laughs> to some degree so let's go back up to let's say you know use the old cliche 30,000 feet here as you point out in your article this kind of uh, electronic warfare can be conducted well within NATO airspace we don't need to fly into Russia uh, and we certainly are cautious about flying over Ukraine uh, with these vehicles so so why aren't we doing it
3: Uh, Well, there's a reticence on the part of the government, you know, the administration to get uh, directly involved in having U.S. forces directly engaging Russian forces in any way. You know, so my point with the UAVs is you'd have an unmanned vehicle engaging Russian troops electronically. So it's about the least, uh, you know, at least, uh, I guess, escalatory way that we can get directly involved in the war. Um, And uh, based on the operations that are happening in Ukraine right now, it seems like the airspace above Ukraine is contested, uh, but it's not denied. You know, so the Ukrainians are flying uh, Turkish TB2 uh, UAVs routinely over airspace that Russians have air defense systems in. And they're not getting shot down, which tells me that those Russian air defense systems either are not capable of effectively targeting a small, slow UAV. Um, or or are we're only- more
0: involved than we're saying.
3: Right. Or well, probably it's probably more likely that the Russians are e- are either not detecting them or engaging them or they're holding back because they don't want to uh, expend their you know kind of precious air defense surface to air missiles on cheap UAVs. So it's, it's probably one of the two um, because uh, the, there's we don't have any indication that the U.S. is involved doing directly electronic warfare jamming on Russian radars. But that could be the case. So mm. my argument is let's fly these these UAVs into Ukrainian airspace um, to be able to jam Russian communications, degrade their ability to coordinate, and maybe even go after some of the Russian radars that they're being used to help you know, deny the airspace to Ukrainian air forces. So there's, there's some ways that the U.S. could get more involved. is like one step up the escalatory ladder. Um, but it, we're kind of at the point where, unless the U.S. takes some more risks, you're going to see this stalemate continue with the uh, attendant effects on Ukrainian civilian populations.
0: Yeah, it does seem to be an optimum time to throw electronic warfare into the mix and pin the Russians against the wall. But moving, moving to another pew in the church, as it were, um, Infowar uh, is a big part of this struggle. Uh, and, uh, you know, before we invaded Iraq, which was not a great idea, but before we did, right. the CIA and other agencies were sending messages to the t- cell phones of Iraqi uh, officers saying, you know, Give up, you know, turn <laughs> yourselves in now. You won't get hurt. Um, and I suspect we're doing the same with the Russians.
3: So it, actually, actually, I don't get the impression we are doing that per se. I think we're sending out plenty of transmissions like ra- via you know, Radio Free Europe and um, you know, a voice of America and, you know, other traditional outlets saying, you know, there's options for Ukrainian troops or rather Russian troops in Ukraine. Um, but uh, but not into, the,
0: th- not into the not into the communication hubs. It, of I, I don't Russian get that news are in- right into their cell phones.
3: Right. So that's, I don't think we're doing that yet because that would be the kind of electronic warfare that I'm talking about here. Now, I will say that that is a tried and true tactic of the Russians that they've been using against the Ukrainians since this war started back right. when you know, in 2011. So when they first started the gray, gray zone operations in the Donbass, they started initially with this, uh, this approach of using terrestrial or UAV-based electronic warfare systems to take over the cell network. Uh, of a Ukrainian region, and then begin transmitting these messages over the cell phone network. So it's it's a it's a well trod area for the Russians, and they've used it pretty effectively. Um, the U.S. could use their own UAVs to pursue a similar approach. Uh, the issue is that it's a fairly sophisticated you know set of the operations you have to do. The systems we've given to the Ukrainians aren't capable of doing that kind of you know hijacking the cell phone number network and sending out your own signals, um, but you know, the systems that are on, you know, the Gray Eagle and the uh, MQ-9, the Intrepid Tiger II system, they would both be capable of doing that. So that's a question to say, well, why aren't we, that seems like an easy U.S. operation too, you know, that could be done to try to uh, degrade the ability of the Russians to continue, disrupt their operations, you know, offer an alternative to troops that may be interested in giving up, because we're already seeing some examples of Russian troops surrendering, you know, to Ukrainian forces uh, in an effort to, you know, avoid you know, being involved further in the in the bloodshed,
0: you know, there's been a lot of commentary uh, recently that uh, the more that Vladimir Putin is cornered, the more dangerous he is. He's already brandished nuclear weapons, so called tactical nuclear weapons, and so on. And of course, another weapon he has is a cyber war, a cyber attacks on the United States. Um, if we get to that dangerous echelon. How do you see the first stages playing out?
3: Uh, Well, I think so in cyber... What's uh, I think what's what you've seen thus far is an example of U.S. Cyber Command strategy playing out successfully. So their their strategy is forward defense, where they persistently engage enemies inside their enemy network. So they don't wait for enemy attacks to come before we respond. They stay engaged day to day and push back on every provocation that comes by going inside the adversary network and showing that we can you know do things to them that are much worse than they'd be able to do us. Mm. And that's a day to day confrontation that's happening at in cyberspace that cybercom talks about once in a while. They mentioned it again last I guess they're doing their testimony right now. Um, but, uh, that's something that, you know, we have not applied to other domains, you know, so we have not applied that same approach in other domains to say, well, we're going to confront you regularly in in the electromagnetic spectrum, or we're going to confront you regularly at sea in these international waters. But that's an approach that the U.S. could extend more broadly. And that was one of my points in the article was to say, CyberCon is pretty successful at keeping the Russians, you know, kind of hemmed in because it's clear to the Russians what our capabilities are and that we're willing to engage and confront them. Um, we should have a, be applying that same approach in other domains where we think there's a common space that should be defended like the spectrum you know, or the maritime domain.
0: Well, we get reminders every day that the Russians seem to be able to waltz into our banks and cyber networks and so on and and uh, muck around in there and, and do a lot of damage. This is not even including the uh, ransomware actors. Um, So it seems to me, and we've had plenty of reports over the years of the vulnerability of our utilities, our power plants. Uh, I've written about even kinetic attacks on our power plants here that seems to have been carried out that are unofficially uh, attributed to the Russians.
3: But but, you, but one thing is uh, on when it, these cyber attacks have occurred, they've been responded to. You know, so there's been reporting on. You know, the U.S. doesn't talk about necessarily all the things it sure. does, but there's been reporting that Russian uh, electrical power generation systems were shut down, electrical networks were shut down. So there's been targeted responses to Russia through cyberspace in you know retaliation for the actions it's taken against the United States. And the impression I get from Cybercom is that they've been doing this on a regular basis as a way to make sure that Russia understands the tools available mm-hmm. to it and that, that Russia is going to be facing much worse if it tries to use those against us. So I, that's part of what's at play here. And I think people are forgetting the fact that we treat cyber differently than we treat every other domain.
0: We, uh, so what you're saying is that we flicker the lights in Moscow every once in a while just to remind them that, that we're there and we can shut them down just like they attack us.
3: Essentially, yes, but it's been in response to actions, right? So part of that, I think that's part of what you're seeing here on the part of, you know, on Moscow's uh, kind of reluctance to use a lot of more aggressive cyber actions against the United States is the recognition that that's going to blow back on them much more severely. Um, and given the state of their economy and the state of, you know, the maybe the tenuous support, you know, for this invasion among the Russian people. You know, if there's going to if they're going to you know, shut down part of the electrical generation grid or you know part of the banking system in Russia goes down, that's just going to be more bad news for an administration already facing a lot of bad news.
0: Yeah. Talk about bad news. There's plenty of it. Um, it seems to be a case study or a strong argument that if we get out of this alive, uh, we're going to need to have a cybersecurity treaty with Russia. China and maybe others to uh, limit the damage here in the same way that we had ballistic missile treaties and nuclear weapons treaties with the Soviets. Uh, So anyway, uh, we'll prepare for the worst and hope for the best. We're (laughs) going to have to leave it there, Brian Clark. Thanks so much for joining us. This was a fascinating discussion.
3: Thanks, Jeff. It was great talking to you.
0: That's Brian Clark, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson Institute. I was interested to learn that Clark served as both an enlisted sailor and a naval officer in the submarine fleet, including tours as a chief engineer and operations officer at sea and on shore.
1: Ooh, I really like that one. A lot of nitty gritty good information about communications that I didn't know before. I like that. One point though, when you talk about treaties and cyberspace, the problem is a lot of the bad actors are not states. They're various uh, rogue uh, groups that are trying to make a lot of money through ransomware attacks, and that that's going to be a really tough nut to, to crack. Even if we do get to the point of forming some norms of behavior that all nations would agree to.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Outside of, uh, you know, thrillers, uh, we didn't really, and James Bond movies, really didn't have to worry about rogue actors with ICBMs. So the treaties with Russia on ICBMs didn't cover rogue actors because we didn't have to really worry about them. But um, something has to be done to control the cyber war or it's going to get out of uh, hand very quickly. And it may be yet because of Ukraine. We're all on tender hooks now to see what's gonna happen next.
1: Interestingly, a lot of countries are now appointing cyber diplomats to try and hammer out some of these kinds of issues. When we come back, we're gonna talk about sanctions. Before we get to that, a reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We would also love to have you subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. A good one, please. Follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jean Meserve, Jeff is at SpyTalker. We'll be back in just a moment. (music) President Biden is in Europe this week, exploring with allies the possibility of imposing additional sanctions on the government and cronies of Vladimir Putin. Already the West has frozen the assets of Russia's central bank, blocked transactions associated with major financial institutions, denied most favored nation trading status, targeted the assets of Russian oligarchs and political leaders, and more. Adam M. Smith was a senior sanctions official with the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control and with the National Security Council during the Obama administration. He's now a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. He says the effective investigation and enforcement of these sanctions will involve many departments and agencies, including Treasury, Justice, and the U.S. intelligence community.
2: Russia is famous for setting up, shall we say, convoluted or even opaque systems of control for different companies. So if you're trying to argue that you are providing services to a, a sanctioned oligarch, for example... Uh, yet this oligarch uh, rests his or her assets in some very Byzantine maze of offshore, of, of offshore, of offshore, of offshore, sort of uh, Marietushka Mary dolls of, uh, of corporate um, entities. How do you figure that out? Um, and the intelligence agencies uh, have become very smart, not just in the Russia context, I think we first saw this in the Iran context, to, to, to be honest, of sort of unraveling some of these sort of corporate forms to figure out exactly who is the ultimate beneficial owner at the end of the, at the, end of the day. So the intelligence agencies are critical for that uh, in ways that you, might, you, you obviously won't necessarily see on, in the newspapers or otherwise.
1: What other federal agencies are involved in this? Well,
2: there's another piece of the sanctions which people aren't really thinking much about yet, but I think they soon will, and that's the Department of Commerce. The Department of Commerce controls export controls. So one of the sort of lesser known components of what the, uh, the allies, for want of a better term, imposed on Russia in the immediate days after the initial invasion were limitations on export of high tech goods in some cases services, but principally goods to Russia. Uh, they have an agency there called the Bureau of Industrial and Security, BIS, um, which has, just like Treasury does, it has civil enforcement authorities with respect to the, the exportation of goods that frankly need a license and would, like, would be denied that license uh, to Russia. And so that agency is becoming increasingly important as sort of a tip of the spear with respect to these sort of sanctions, export controls on Russia.
1: The Internal Revenue Service is supposed to play a part here, I believe, as an enforcer, but they've been badly understaffed. Does that minimize its effectiveness in uh, the Russia situation? To the extent they would be involved,
2: it of course minimizes effectiveness. I think it's certainly the case for any agency that is resource constrained, that they're going to be limited. OFAC, that agency I've mentioned before, which is the Sanctions Agency at Treasury, is famously um, resource efficient, shall we say, Uh, perhaps constrained, but certainly efficient. They've been given more money recently, but historically they've had a tiny, tiny budget and a tiny, tiny personnel um, for a huge, or frankly, an increasingly large of group of activities. So can the government do the job, given that fact? It's a great question. Um, I'd like to say yes, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure, and the reason I'm not sure is not because I don't think they're good people. It's because the target and the target set is so much larger than any other target set the US has ever really focused on, right? If you think about Russia as a target and sort of as a target of sanctions, it is by far the largest entity as an economic matter that the US has ever gone after, and it's not even close. Um, the largest economy other than Russia the U.S. has ever gone after is Iran, which is a shadow of the size of Russia and not nearly as globally important. And after Iran, you're dealing with Zimbabwe and North Korea and Cuba, not real economies in the real sense of the word, but Russia is a true G20 and arguably you know, top 10 economy in the world. And so going after that is going to be an immense challenge because it is a large, sophisticated, incredibly enmeshed player in a way that we've never, we've never targeted anyone like this before.
1: So the U.S. has formed a kleptocracy asset recovery program, offering rewards of as much as $5 million. Is that kind of a program um, meaningful? Will it, will it do what they're hoping it will do? The, the klepto
2: capture initiative. I, I like the alliteration. It's hard, it's, going to, it's hard to sell. I mean, obviously there are other similar reward programs that we've seen, uh, terrorism capture and otherwise, that we've sort of seen, uh, that have had some some success. Uh, so I think we'll see. Um, it's going to be an interesting question uh, about how quickly the U.S. can move. And I say that it's, it's an interesting question because The other piece of this, which I think is important to remember, and one of the reasons I think this is different than other focuses on oligarchs and these sorts of things that we've seen in the past, is that it's truly multilateral, right, in a way that has never been. We've sanctioned oligarchs since 2014, since Crimea, Um, but it's really only ever really been unilateral, the U.S. sort of measures. Uh, But now you've got a true transatlantic and even a full G7 sort of task force with Japan involved as well. And so I think that's going to be interesting. What we're seeing already is the uh, Italians, the French, the Germans, and even the Spaniards arguably moving more quickly than the United States to sort of seize certain assets of certainly oligarchs, the big vessels that we keep seeing um, in the press. So I don't know, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the US is able to do and whether they can speed up.
1: What role do you think the private sector sleuths are going to have, like this 19-year-old college student, Jack Sweeney, who's been tracking the movements of oligarch yachts and jets?
2: Huge, huge, because not just—I mean, I think tracking movements, as we know, DNI and others can do that just as well as Mr. Sweeney can. But because there's so much information out there uh, in open source, I think that the reliance of uh, on sort of open source information, I think, is going to be pretty critical. Again, because the the opacity of how the Russians sort of have planned and structured their assets. Uh, is such that you need to have a whistleblower. You need to have somebody uh, who can sort of uh, peel uh, peel a bit of the onion out so that then you can have others who can then sort of take and run it with that. So I do think that the the private sector sleuths, so to speak, are going to play an interesting role here.
1: You mentioned this multilateral task force that's been formed, but, but some people question the commitment even of some of our allies, specifically the UK. I mean, London has been referred as London grad because of all the Russian investment there. What do you think?
2: I think it's a very fair criticism and concern, because historically, as I mentioned, enforcement was really a one-way street. You had very active enforcers in Washington and not much in other sort of close allies even in Europe, especially in places like London. That's one of the reasons that the, that the, the Russians found London such a wonderful place. Not just Russians, mind you. A lot of people who had money to sort of spend in interesting ways in real estate could do so very easily in Belgravia and Mayfair and Kensington and all the rest. However, I think what's interesting about this recent round of sort of going after sort of ill-gotten gains, for want of a better term, is that people seem to have woken up. And so just last week, uh, new laws were proposed, and I think even passed in the House of Commons, uh, that could potentially change some of this in a way that is surprising. The UK has sanctioned some of these oligarchs, which we never thought they would do. And as I mentioned, on the continent, who have also historically been very slow to move on enforcement, have also moved very quickly. Even the Swiss, uh, who have historically been very neutral, I mean, historically and infamously, uh, have decided to step off from the sidelines and have decided to impose sanctions on oligarchs, on banks and otherwise. So there's the holes that have been in the net uh, over in Europe seem to be, and I say seem because it's still early days, seem to be closing up in ways that we've never seen before.
1: Let's talk about the ways that the Russians might be able to evade sanctions. So first of all, how do they launder the money? What are they buying? Well, they're very famous.
2: As I said, they've got incredibly sophisticated lawyers and sophisticated business folks who um, are able to hide sources of funds and hide them through offshore of offshore of offshore. The, The Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers sort of shed some light as to what they and frankly others were doing in this regard. They end up buying lots of interesting pieces, lots of assets that are movable um, in some cases. So the, that's why the yachts and the big and the big airplanes and arts are, are sort of so popular. Uh, real estate is harder for them to move, obviously, uh, but that is a piece of it as well, because in some cases, even in some cases in the United States, it's historically been fairly easy to hide who the ultimate beneficial owners are of certain assets. Uh, and so that's a very common sort of approach. There are some pretty simple approaches that you've also seen uh, There's a reason why Uh, President Putin's cello teacher is a very wealthy man. It's not because teaching cello is particularly lucrative. It's because he has become sort of a a nominee, so to speak, as we understand it, for President Putin. So the story goes. You also see people moving trusts away from themselves to their children to to, uh, different sort of uh, friends and uh, and allies, so to speak, to sort of warehouse um, assets, to warehouse shares, to warehouse things in ways that are, again, very challenging to follow through on. You also see um, other sorts of jurisdictions perhaps being less well-suited um, for some sort of this enforcement. One of the things that's interesting about the EU is enforcement is not done at Brussels, it's done by the member states, so 27 different member states, and the difference between some member states and others is evident between both resources, political will, and collateral exposure. Uh, the difference between you know, some of these jurisdictions is quite noticeable. and so. That's one of the big ways that the Russians have historically been able to sort of get through the cracks by sort of going to jurisdictions that they thought they were safer in. And frankly, historically, they've been right.
1: And what about the role of countries like China, like Iran, like Venezuela?
2: All of that is possible. Obviously, of the three, China is the one most people are thinking about. Um, But interestingly, there are two parts of it that I think are interesting. Um, One, in some respects, I don't think China is going to be able to fill the hole. And by the whole, I mean, for example, the export control piece I mentioned earlier. There are certain things that China just doesn't produce. Um, you know, High-end technology, AI, semiconductors and chips that frankly, only a few jurisdictions, Taiwan among, amongst them, the US, some parts of Europe, China can't fill, fill that hole, back, can't backfill. From a, from a sort of economic backfill perspective, now that some parts of the Russian instit- uh, financial sector have been shut off through SWIFT and whatnot, could they just run their transactions through Beijing or Shanghai? Potentially they could. Uh, but then Beijing has to realize that they will then get this counter sanctions sort of tart swung towards them. And the question is whether they really want to do that. And I think they've been surprised by the near unanimity of concern the world has, has sort of demonstrated with respect to this invasion. And I'm not sure that they, in their desire to continue rising uh, and continue developing soft power, sort of want to be seen as sort of aiding perhaps the, you know, the least popular guy in the lunchroom at this stage.
1: So the banking system has mm. played the role of a gatekeeper. Can the Russians evade the banking, banking system by using cryptocurrencies?
2: Crypto is, is very much the flavor of the month. People are thinking that, well, if you, if you just move into Bitcoin, you can't do that. Uh, you, you can't sort of control the Federal Reserve and the OCC and all the regulators, state or otherwise, in the US can't control that. And to a degree that's right, you could. There are some, a couple of limits to that. Uh, first of all, even in the crypto sector, companies are becoming increasingly concerned about being seen as a conduit uh, for bad activities and bad actions. And so the largest players the crypto sector are increasingly coming online right, with respect to uh, engaging in enforcement activities, KYC activities or otherwise. The second piece, which is perhaps even more important, is that you still can't really live your life on crypto. At some point, you need to transfer your Bitcoin or your Ether into fiat. And the moment you do that, a real bank is involved, an old-line bank, and that's where sort of sanctions and export controls and other things can hit.
1: So Russia has talked about establishing their own digital currency. Would that make a difference?
2: It could if people are interested in buying it. Right, if people are interested in accepting that as a medium of, of payment, it could. Uh, the problem they have is whether it's the digital payment or whether, they, whether it's rubles, as of right now, no one's interested in sort of taking them uh, for payments, at least not at the value that, they, that the Russians were used to, um, were used to it for the, in the past. So I'm not sure if that's going to be an effective strategy for
1: them. Russia is very good at ransom attacks. Um, There have been several significant ransom attacks that have been tied back to Russian actors. Could they make up for lost revenue by simply staging a whole bunch of attacks on targets in the West?
2: Potentially. Potentially. I mean, well, first of all, I'm not sure they can make up for all that they've lost uh, through ransom attacks. That would be rather significant. I mean, they've lost billions just in the pace of, you know, three or four weeks now. Uh, But could they make life difficult for Ukrainians close by and those in the West? Absolutely. Um, and ransom attacks, you know, the U.S. government is, and broader West is very aware of these sorts of issues. I think there's been a lot of hardening, though, of resources in that regard. I'm not convinced that we're hardened enough. And I think that if they really attack, they could they could do some damage. Uh, but there has been a lot of sort of hardening, certainly in the U.S., with respect to core resources, core infrastructure. I think will make it more difficult, uh, but certainly they could wreck some havoc if that was really what they wanted to do.
1: Oil and gas have not yet been sanctioned. And some people have said the sanctions will not be effective unless they are included. Do you agree? It's hard not to agree. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean,
2: John McCain was a little flippant when he said that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. But there is some truth to that, because at the end of the day, they sell two things or, well, more than two things, but most of the things they sell in the gas and oil sector, the minerals, it all comes out of the ground. And so, the principal things that they're selling are oil and gas, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars off that, if not billions. And so it's hard to imagine a world in which you don't shut off their principal exports. And if you don't do that, how you can actually sort of turn the screws, it's a little hard to imagine how one does that.
1: But if you do do that, the West suffers.
2: The Europeans directly suffer, and arguably the West more broadly suffers. This is this is the razor that we're walking, right? Because I think no one, no one disputes this, that if you are trying to turn the screws on President Putin and you're trying to use the economic lever, if you're not gonna turn the lever uh, to a degree where you're actually limiting the principal exports that, that are keeping him afloat and keeping the military going and all the rest, you're limited to how much pain you can, use, you can, you can uh, exert using this lever.
1: So there are two points of view on sanctions. One is that they will change his policies. The other is that they will only make him more angry and make him lash out. Which school are you in?
2: I am in neither school. Um, I'm sort of in the middle ground. I certainly do not think they will change his policy in the immediate term. Um, I do think that it could force him potentially to lash out, but I'm not sure it will even have that impact. I think he has a goal in Ukraine, which is based in a misunderstanding or misalignment of historical narratives about what is or is not the Russian sphere. Um, And that is he's now staked his entire legacy on. And so I think that the sanctions are not going to impact his ability, his willingness, rather, maybe not even his ability to take Ukraine, even with incredible devastation and destruction that that he will likely cause. That being said, in the longer term, the medium term, when sanctions will hit, sanctions really do bite uh, in the medium to long term, they don't really bite, at least not really from the perspective of the inside the Kremlin feeling this immediately. I think it could maybe cause him to think twice, but that's not an immediate issue. And it's certainly not even, it's not even certain, and it will not even be something that will necessarily we can find out, right? It's still stuff sort of in between his ears. The only sort of examples I can sort of think about in this immediate context is 2014, right? When we imposed sanctions after Crimea, uh, I was involved in that effort and it was a piecemeal effort because we've never sanctioned anything so big as Russia. We were very nervous. And so the result was a piecemeal effort that was principally unilateral, although the Europeans sort of came in sort of a little bit more half-hearted than we would have liked. Um, And the result was that President Putin stayed in Crimea. However, if you talk to people in Ukraine, even Ukrainians themselves, they would said to me that if not for the sanctions, he would have been in Kiev in 2014. In other words, the sanctions, according to some Ukrainian thinking, uh, did not move him from Crimea, but perhaps made him think twice about going further. So who knows, right? This is a social science, not real science, right? So it's all multivariate and we have no idea really what's causing President Putin to act other than what he tells us. Uh, So I think sanctions are certainly not making his life any easier. But I'm not sure that merely because his populace are feeling pain, which, of course, is what sanctions are designed to do, whether that will change his sort of mechanics or his thinking or his calculus.
1: Sanctions, as you've said, take time. Do we have time? He's flattening Ukraine.
2: Sanctions are not going to stop the flattening of Ukraine. Right. This is part of the problem with sanctions is that the, if, if what they're trying to do is move against a military force and you know, moving at kinetic speed, that moves at a very fast speed, you know, hypersonically in some of these missiles cases, right? Um, sanctions do not move that that speed, so it's it's a it's a um, disjuncture between the force against, namely sanctions, and the force. In the force four, namely the, the war. And so I, I am concerned that people are, people are putting too much stock in sanctions as, as sort of being the thing that will finally ask him to turn his tanks back. They won't, they won't. Um, and I'm un- it's, it's unfortunate, I wish that were the case. Um, and you know, it's certainly the case, it's interesting that, that President Zelensky, when, he, you know, when he's talking to Congress, talking to the Knesset, talking to the House of Commons, he's talking about desire for more kinetic help um, he does talk about sanctions, absolutely. And he, I think, is grateful for that. But what he's really after is, how do you match a tank? You don't match a tank by putting another bank on a blacklist, unfortunately. If you really want to push the tank back, you're going to need stingers and javelins, um, or no-fly zone, which is obviously what he really wants. Um, and I think that's, that's just the reality.
1: Why do it? then?
2: So I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, some are more cynical than others. Um, When it comes down to it, we don't have that many tools in our toolbox when we're trying to deal with coercive authorities that have more limited political, and let's face it, uh, material cost. Um, We just don't. We have some development aid we could sort of throw in as as for carrots or some sort of diplomatic aid we could sort of throw in as carrots. But on the stick side of the house, uh, we have kinetic action, which of course is expensive and politically explosive, uh, putting men and women in harm's way is never easy. And then you have sanctions, right? There's not much sort of else on that toolbox, unfortunately. And the issue with sanctions is not only have they have been used, I would argue to good effect in some cases and less of good effect in others. Uh, but the other piece of sanctions that are interesting is that A, they look like you're doing something uh, when when they're when you don't wanna do anything harder, right? which is the cynical approach. Uh, They have worked in the past, I would argue in like the Iran context, I would argue that they were necessary, if not sufficient to bring them to the table for the nuclear deal. The other piece that people forget about about sanctions, which I think is a fascinating piece, is that sanctions to the government budget line are a zero cost endeavor, right? There literally is, there's no CBO number that comes with sanctions. There's a cost. In fact, I have a job because costs are because the sanctions aren't free. That's what people pay me for. Uh, but at the end of the day, compare that to deploying a, you know, the, the, the Sixth Fleet to the Fourth Fleet. That's a much more expensive endeavor. Uh, the missiles actually cost something. To do a sanction, all the president does is he calls over to Treasury. Treasury writes an executive order. It's a piece of paper that then puts into, into the ether and the private sector. Private sector enforces. It's completely outsourced to the private sector. It costs nothing to the government. It seems largely performative. It is in part performative. There is true impact, don't get me wrong, the true impact on the ruble, on the closure of the Moscow Stock Exchange, on the ability for Russians to sort of enjoy their lives, especially those who have been sanctioned, these are true impacts. Um, But those aren't necessarily impacts that change the policy goals that we're really trying to change, namely President Putin's desire to invade Ukraine and whoever else is next. the sanctions, in my mind, don't actually go that far. Um, and I think that the problem, again, is not that sanctions are incapable of doing that. I think they can in some cases, but I think that when you're dealing with a, an opponent like President Putin, who again has framed what he's trying to do in such central terms, you know, mythological terms in a way, um, it's hard to sort of cause him any amount of pain Uh, more to the point, his people any amount of pain, that will cause him to rethink that. Um, And sanctions are not a tool that has historically worked in those circumstances. Sanctions work much more uh, likely to work at any rate in in times when you don't have an entire soul of a people or soul of a leader tied up in in an act that sanctions are trying to uh, convince them not to engage in, right? In those contexts, you do have some success. this context, with respect to actually dealing with Ukraine, I am concerned. Will it be enough potentially for him not to go into Moldova, or not to potentially, you know, God forbid, go into the NATO country and cause who knows what sort of uh, reaction? Um, maybe, right? But this the, the problem with the evidence of the effectiveness is that you're always trying to prove the negative. Uh, and proving the negative is, you know, again, this is social science, not real science. So who knows really why President Putin didn't go to Kiev in 2014, and he, and he decided to do it this year? It's not clear. Um, were sanctions a piece of that or not? It, I don't know. They certainly could be. Um, will there be enough for him to just take Ukraine or pieces of Ukraine and not go elsewhere? Hopefully, if that's really what he wants to do. But, uh, but I'm not confident that sanctions, if he really wants to do that, are gonna be enough to stop him. Is there good news here? There is good news. And the good news, I think, is a couple of fold. On the one hand, I think you're seeing sort of a revitalization of the West in a very important and impressive way, right? The the imposition of sanctions, whether they work or not has been done more or less in lockstep uh, with the allies. That's the EU, that's the UK, that's Japan, um, that's Switzerland. I mean, these are jurisdictions that have historically been pretty uh, meek in some respects with respect to sanctions. And they're really moving very quickly and robustly. Um, even on the enforcement side, which is where they've really fallen out in in, in the past. Um, And that, I think, is a very promising piece. The other piece, which I find also promising, is the focus on the oligarchs. And I don't say that because I think a focus on the oligarchs is going to change President Putin's mind any more than the sanctions of the banks or anything else, but because I think what's also happening is that the West is waking up uh, to a reality that I think observers have long recognized that the real problem with sort of dirty money in the system, and I mean that in the global financial system, is not just a problem of a you know, shady people in sunny places of sort of the offshore jurisdictions that we all know and love. It's London, it's New York, uh, it's Frankfurt, it's other jurisdictions that have historically held themselves up as sort of paragons of sort of purity that we know are just never been the case. And so if this wakes up the West to sort of get rid of their own sort of concerns about keeping uh, ultimate beneficial owners secret and allowing sort of opacity within their system and potentially helps clear out corruption, um, that's a national security issue that I think will help us, help the West on a going forward basis. So that in my mind, even if the oligarch provisions aren't gonna sort of change Ukraine, I'm hoping they'll actually change the countries that are imposing these sorts of restrictions in positive ways that will help national security on a going forward
1: basis. That was Adam M. Smith. He was a senior sanctions official during the Obama administration with the Treasury Department and the National Security Council. He is now a partner at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher.
0: As we're learning, uh, this sanctions issue is a big, big quagmire, uh, and we don't know where the bottom is. I was listening to a BBC interview just last night criticizing the UK government for not acting years ago on sanctions, getting to the bottom of russian investments in london often called london stan and now they're finding that there are so many layers between a russian oligarch and his properties that it's going to be very very difficult to drill down into uh into the real bank accounts getting the real money owned by these guys so this is going to be with us for a long time
1: And as Smith mentions in the interview, it isn't just London. It's almost any major city in the West. Mm -hmm. There's some money laundering going on. Fascinating. In any event. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Subscribe also to our podcast. Leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter. And that is the end of my instruction for this week. (laughs) Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Jean Mazur.
0: And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening and see you here next week. For more original reporting
1: and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.